Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, it is great to see you today. I, um, I want to just announce one more thing. One of the reasons that we'll not be doing the Wednesday dinners throughout July and August is we have some friends who on Thursday evenings serve the poorest, the most needy, the most hardcore homeless you can imagine or can't imagine, uh, 80 to 100 every Thursday evening, and we want to come alongside and help them. And we were there just to scout it out a few weeks ago and took several of our good folks. And, um, and the group that was helping out that night, I, I know their intentions were good. I, I know some of the people. But they were feeding discount hot dogs and out-of-date potato chips. And we thought, can we do better? And the answer that came rolling back was, we can do a lot better. And so we're going to cook up a really nice dinner. I believe the first menu is going to be Filipino food. Okay, So if you want to be in on that team, either of preparing or helping to serve, would Dean raise your hand? See Dean. Uh, before the day is done, or sometime this week, get hold of him. You can see him Wednesday. And uh, because we're assembling a team that we really want to bless, we, we want these folks to say, man, I ain't never eat like that. We want it to be that good, okay? And we want to do it right. And we want to honor Christ. And again, we're not going to puff up our church or anything like that, but, uh, but we want to bless some people that maybe haven't been blessed in a long time. So if you want to help out, uh, that's there to do as well. Well, I hope you brought your Bible with you today because we're going to do some thinking. We're going to use our Bible to do some thinking. I've entitled this series, Do You Love God Enough to Think About Him? And I plan on stretching you today. In the next few moments, my plan is to stretch the way you think about Him. I'm, I'm going to stretch you in the next few minutes to think about him in ways that maybe you have never thought about God before. You know, the deepest things about our God, because he is a relationship, and I even hesitate to say he because God is no more masculine than he is feminine. It's just the rut we've gotten into. But God is a relationship. And the deepest things about our God, you, you cannot understand them through problem solving or question and answer, even if all of your questions could be answered, or through propositions or statements or formulas or doctrinal truths. You, that's not the way you understand our God. You can't think your way to God. Mysteries are best explained in stories. Down through the years, some of the most creative minds have tried to explain God through stories. A great English poet by the name of John Milton wrote a poem, and I take the title for this message today from his poem, Paradise Lost. We're going to talk about how we lost paradise. Other great poets have looked at all of this. And, and just a side note, 
many of the ideas that we have popularly about angels and devils and heaven and hell don't come from the Word of God, but from the fertile brains of people like John Milton. But I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, the third chapter, book of beginnings. And we're going to think about God in a different way today. That is my hope. I want us to take just a minute to ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, do that. This is your written word. You are the living word. And we ask that your written word would come alive to us today. You breathed it. Now breathe into us so it lives again. We pray that in your name. We love you and thank you. Everybody said amen. 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 Take a look in Genesis 3. <clears throat> you can read along with your like or just listen along because I'm going to be reading today from Eugene Peterson's The Message version of the Bible. And so it will be a little bit differently than perhaps what you have. But listen along. Top of the chapter 3, Genesis. Now the serpent was clever. More clever than any wild animal God had made. And he spoke to the woman... There was just one woman and one man at this time, our original parents. He spoke to the woman, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? That is not what God said. Now she's savvy enough to know that. And the woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden. God tagged it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it, don't even touch it, or you'll die. The serpent, continuing the conversation, told the woman, you won't die, liar. God knows that the moment that you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything ranging all the way from good to evil. You'll know everything. And when the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything, she took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate. So she made a decision and he made a decision. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error. They weren't tricked. It was a decision. Immediately, the two of them did see what's really going on. They saw themselves naked. And they sewed fig leaves together as a makeshift clothes for themselves. And when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden. They hid from God. And God called to the man and said, Where are you? There are a lot of sad passages in the Bible to me. That's a sad one. God calling out, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? And then his real question, did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? And it takes a roundabout course, but eventually... There's a full confession, yes. And then God speaks to the serpent, the consequences of his part in it. God speaks to the woman, her part, and God speaks to the man. 
Pick it up. Verse 22, same chapter. Then God said, the man has become like one of us. You see, God is a relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. You could not say God is love. God is love. But you could not say God is love if God weren't a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he's talking within himself here. And he says the man has become like one of us, capable of knowing everything, ranging from good to evil. What if he should now reach out, worst case scenario, and take the fruit from the tree of life? Because they weren't forbidden to do that. What if he should reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life and eat and live forever? Never. This cannot happen. So God expelled them from the garden. And he sent them to work the ground. The same dirt out of which they had been made. And he threw them out of the garden and he stationed angel cherubim and when you see cherubim in the Bible, don't think little floating naked babies with wings. But these are terrifying creatures. And a revolving sword of fire east of it, guarding the path to the tree of life. When you look at that story, there are several things that you can pick up on. One of the things I pick up on is that buried deep in this story, it tells me that there is a bigger plan than you know, than I know. A bigger plan. God has a bigger plan than you can know. Now, I believe that, that God has a big plan for you and for me and for everybody. I believe that not because it's the thing that I should say to you, oh, God has a plan for your life, because it sounds like what I should be saying. That's not why I believe it. And I don't say it because I'm trying to be positive in some positive reinforcement kind of way or because even I care very much for the people in this room. That's not why I say God has a bigger plan. But I say it because this ancient story has the tree of life in it. Now the tree of life shows up here, but throughout the pages of Scripture it largely disappears after this event. After this sad episode, you only get a couple of mentions, and those are only just points of nostalgia recalling it. You don't get any more information. It's not involved in the story anymore. Until the very end of your Bible, the very last book, the closing words, the tree of life makes an appearance again, and it says that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing, listen, of nations. That does not mean geographic boundaries with borders. It doesn't mean parallels on a map. When it says that the tree of life, the very leaves are for the healing of nations, it means for the healing of people groups, ethnic groups that have been wounded one by another down through the history of time. At the end of time, the tree of life comes back and its primary purpose is for the healing of people groups' wounds. But then with the appearance of the tree of life again, God does again what He hasn't done for thousands of years. He, he goes back into the creation business. And he starts making new things. 
that haven't been made yet. <laughs> and new worlds. And guess what? We're told that we get to have a part in that. I'm going to suggest the three-headed giraffe and see if he'll do it. But the tree of life shows up again at the very, very end again. When God begins to create again. That's what, the, that's what the tree of life is all about. You can get it from the name life. There's, there's plenty of information in this little story. You can go home and go back and visit it again later today. And you'll find that there's plenty of information in this little story about that other tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's lots of data on that. But the tree of life is present in this story without anything like a full explanation. What is it for? What does it do? Why, why are we not forbidden to eat that one when we are the other one? Where did it come from? Why is it placed there? It's, it's a wonderful, intriguing mystery, this life-giving tree. At first, read the story. We had unrestricted access to it. God within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, he must have had a, a plan, a big plan, a further, grander plan. He, he, he didn't intend us, you see. When he created us, he, he didn't intend us to be only mortal or to be always mortal. That's why the life that he deals in is eternal life, you see. And this, this further, grander, unexplained design for us that involves the tree of life, life forever on a, on a level that we can't guess at, that must be part of his bigger plan. His plans for us are way beyond what we could imagine. The Word says about it, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man or woman the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Wow. But the tree disappears. And that's a greater sadness. Look at that verse 24. As you read it, it's enough really to make you weep. Because it says God expels them from the garden. He sent them to work the ground the same dirt out of which they'd been made, and he threw them out of the garden and stationed angel cherubim and a revolving sword of fire east of it, guarding the path to the tree of life. That's enough to make you cry, isn't it? When you think about what it is that we've actually lost, we're barred from approaching now. He never intended us to be mortal, like I said a moment ago. Just mortal. He never intended that for us. He never intended that we would be always earthbound and subject to the laws of nature. And here Satan appears and he offers a shortcut. He said a shortcut to immortality, but like everything Satan offers, it's just bait. It's not real food. In what can't be put into formulas, but can only be told in a story, we are alarmed in this story to find that access to this wonderful tree, whatever it is, unrestricted at first, 
is now by disobedience made off limits to us. We can't touch it. We can't see it. We can't approach it. And I wonder, is this why in the quiet hours our souls groan sometimes? And we sense that they're groaning for a faraway country that we've never visited. It's now too dangerous for us to be around that tree. And so it has to be divinely guarded and it has to be hidden away from us. I think that is sad. So there's a bigger plan and there's a greater sadness, but there's a great myth in this story too. Look at verse 5. It says, Satan talking here, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Good all the way to evil. You'll know everything. God knows that. And what he's doing here, Satan, is he's accusing God of bad motives, isn't he? God has said, in the day that you eat that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that in the day that you do that, the moment you do that, you will be wrecked by that. But Satan says, no, 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 no. You'll be God. That's what you'll be. That's why he doesn't want you to get near it, touch it, or eat it. Your, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God. Only half of what he said there is true. Their eyes were open. You know, I've been doing this long enough that I've had people come to me and have actually argued people who were unfaithful to their spouse, stepping out on their wife or their husband, carrying on an affair. I've actually had people come and argue that unfaithfulness, yes, I am unfaithful to my spouse, but in my case, in my case, it is a good thing. I've actually heard people say that. I've, I've actually heard people say, though they know that the poor, however they got poor, they may have shot themselves in, a, in their foot a thousand times over and made multiple bad decisions, got cranked up on dope and lost their mind, and now they're poor. And I've actually heard people say, I don't care that Jesus said we're supposed to pay attention to the poor. In my case, ignoring them is okay. I've heard people say, no matter what the Word says, no matter what other people do, that my refusal to forgive, in my case, is understandable. That my sustained anger and my resentment, in my case, it makes sense. Now because of that phrase, knowing good and evil something happens. Knowing good and evil, the presence of the tree of life here, it shows the intentions, the good intentions of Father, Son, and Spirit in putting it there. The good intention of Father, Son, and Spirit is life. That's why they put it there. Now ancient pagan people and even some modern people, they believe that God's plans we're always to keep human beings from the truly good stuff, from immortal life, from eternal life. 
The ancient pagan people had all kinds of stories how they had to steal life if they were going to get it because the gods wanted to keep them away. But modern people think the same thing, that God is trying night and day, 24-7, to keep me from the really good stuff in life. They're wrong. They're wrong. In eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were doing what we do, though. They were declaring their independence. We do the same thing with disobedience. But because of that phrase, knowing good and evil, that was a sad day. It, it, was, it was a sad day when we knew things that way. When we knew good and evil, that was a sad day. Now today, on this side of that event and our experience, now we can only know good and, because we know evil. That's the only way we know what's good, because we know evil. But originally, after God had pronounced everything he had done, good and very good, all we could know was good. We couldn't know anything but good, because evil had never entered the equation, because there wasn't any evil. You see, evil is not a thing. Evil is like darkness. It's not a created thing. God didn't make evil. Not a created thing, but it's the absence of something that we need and something that's good. You see, darkness is the absence of light. Evil isn't a thing. It's an absence of goodness. It's, a, it's the absence of a very good thing. It's the absence of a very godlike thing. And whenever the godlike thing is not present, it is evil, you see. But back to those people that say, in my case. In my case, unfaithfulness makes sense. In my case, stinginess makes sense. In my case, unforgiveness makes sense. Back to those folks. They have knowledge but they don't know a couple of things. They don't know either how truly beautiful and rich and new and creative the goodness of God is, nor do they know how corrosive and ugly and deformed and hideous evil is. You see, at this point, the picture painted here in this story of our parents is a dead-on accurate portrait of every single one of us. You see, we know good and evil, but we don't know good from evil. So what do we do? We don't really know good from bad. We know good and bad, but we don't know them differently. We get them tangled up. And that's why we can end up saying, but in my case. So what do we do? We make it up ourselves. We decide what is good and we decide what is bad. We all have our own versions, don't we? We all have our own versions of good and evil. We, we all have our own idea about what is right and what is wrong. And that's the reason for every single conflict there's ever been between spouses or nations or people groups because we have our own ideas about what is right and what is wrong. We made them up. That's why so many arguments 
That's why so many wars, that's why families shatter, that's why assaults happen, that's why children are harmed, that's why good marriages disintegrate. Because we have different ideas about what's right and wrong. That's why contracts are broken and cars are stolen and houses are burglarized. That's why spouses that were promised at the altar, baby, I will love you to the end of time, they get beat up in the kitchen. That's why the poor are hungry. That's why groups feel right to hate other groups. Because we've invented our own versions of right and wrong, good and evil. We know good and evil. We don't know good from evil. We we know good and evil. Like the enemy said we would. You will know good and evil. He said we would and we do, but we don't know good from evil. Now, don't kid yourself. We have very high and exacting standards of behavior. It it is not a case like the hand ringers are saying, oh, we have no morals, we have no rights, we have no wrongs. The world is not what it used to be. No, it's not a case of low standards. Our, Our standards of acceptable conduct are extremely high. I would suggest at this point in human history, they are higher than they've ever been before for other people. For other people. How other people should behave. What outrages us in other people. What they would dare to do to us, we can easily explain away and excuse in ourselves. You see how mixed up we've become. And you know what it means? It means we become, again, exactly what Satan said we would become. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. We are little gods, all of us. Now we're pale, impotent, laughingstock gods, but in our own minds, we are gods unto ourselves. And it can't end any other way, could it? I mean, think about it. In our decisions to do things our own way, to make our own rules, we think that's setting us free. It's really crippling us. Carrying this knowledge that is really only half knowledge, because within ourselves, we cannot tell good from evil. All that's left then, we make it up as we go along with horrible results. I want you to go with me to the foot of Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel is there, a million strong, to receive from the great God who's led them out of slavery to receive the Torah, the law. What God expects, the standards. We call it the Ten Commandments. And it's a a day full of drama and noise as the mountain is shaking and terrifying everybody and only Moses is allowed on the thing. Anybody else will be struck dead. And so they're at a safe distance beyond the barriers, but they feel the shaking and they hear the thunder as God begins to speak and the outpouring of smoke that's over the whole thing. The thunder at Sinai the giving of the law, 
That was the unmistakable voice of God. It was God saying this one thing, I am God and you are not. You're not little gods. You don't know good from evil. But we believe we're gods. And we believe that as our own God, that we know all we need to know to make all the decisions we need to make. We believe we're gods and we know all we need to know. We aren't and we don't. Self-sufficiency, having all the answers for myself and for everybody else. Allowing no mystery. Believing that we're gods unto ourselves. That is a great myth that we have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. But while that's a great myth, in this story there is a greater myth. And let me wrap up with that. For much of our lives we've swallowed a greater myth than the idea that I am God. And it's something that I'm only just now seeing. I feel like for the first time, and I, I think and I hope that you're seeing it too. Look at verses 8 and 9. Look at what we're told there in this story. And when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden. They hid from God. They had enjoyed access face to face with God. That's what he's down there for. Seems to be his habit. But on this particular day, They've adopted a radically different idea about God than they had the day before. And they run and hide, and they run and hide because they believe God is angry with them. That's a myth. He wasn't angry. He's not angry. The idea that people have of an angry God is not true. When Somebody comes to me and says, I don't believe in God. I tell them, tell me about that God you don't believe in. And it almost always involves a God who is angry, that we've disappointed, and he's upset with us. And I tell the atheist, you're 100% right not to believe in that God because that God does not exist. They believe God is angry. And that's so sad again. Because as you see him coming into the garden, you can sense the sadness of God. Where are you? There's disappointment within Father, Son, and Spirit. And a great disappointment is what sent Jesus to the earth. Because it reached a critical mass with people believing that God is angry and He's not approachable. That's why people don't read the Bible. That's why they don't come to church. That's why people don't pray. That's why they say they don't believe in God. Who wants a God who's angry? And it reached such a point that the Son Himself said, I will go. And Jesus Christ comes to earth to convince us the Father is not angry, and He pulls back the curtain so that we can see the heart of Father, Son, and Spirit. And He's not angry. Oh, you read in the Word 
you'll read plenty about the wrath of God. God gets angry, and there is wrath, but the wrath of God is not so much against us as for us. When He sees things that will stand between us, the lies that keep us from Him, then He gets plenty angry. But because anger is not the issue, really, God is not angry at us. Our God doesn't need to be placated. That's not what the cross is about. An angry father and a willing son. And everybody is satisfied when the debt is paid and the legal transaction is a done deal. Jesus did pay our debt on the cross, but he didn't do it to placate an angry father. That's not what the cross is about. In fact, the way it's told that way is a mutilation of the good news, and it makes it less than good news because God the Father is less than good in that story. Now, he's never angered at us. He gets angry at the lies that keep us separated from him, but he's never angry at us. But from the beginning, it's always been about the love of God. That's why he came into the garden that day. His love drove him there. It's not a sickly, sweet sentiment when you talk about the love of God either. It's not a pale indulgence of a doting old man sitting up there. But the love of God, let me tell you, the love of God is thunderous. It is an all-conquering love. It's the love of a God who knows within himself and loves within himself. And then he explodes in that love and the universe comes into existence because of his love. In his love, all your sins, they're already forgiven. You see, he doesn't wait for you to beg forgiveness to forgive you. You're already forgiven. Even if you don't believe in him, you're already forgiven. Even if you curse him, you're already forgiven. The only difference between people in hell and people in heaven, they'll all be forgiven sinners. The only difference is some see that and some choose not. But it's already a done deal. All you need to do is see it. And when you do, let me warn you. I'm going to warn you now. When you process this, that you have already been forgiven and that all you need to do is see it, when that begins to process through you, that you've already been included and that in fact you're not only included in what he's doing, you're included in who he is. When you begin to process that, let me caution you because when you do, when you really do, your love for him will return in an explosion back. And there's nothing, there is nothing that he could ever ask that you would even remotely think of saying no to. So be careful, because the love of God is a dangerous thing. And it's that. And not rules. And not laws. And not regulations. That is why our lives are transformed by the love of God. Once we begin seeing Him and we see God in Christ, great is the measure of our Father's love. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly. 
a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.